0: Hello everybody, I am Kinsey Brown, actor, master thespian, educator, and sometimes Peter Horn's scene partner. You just found yourself at the point of learning. Buckle up because today's guest, Emily Style, has something for everybody. On today's show, Emily Style, a visionary educator who 31 years ago laid out a simple but transformative framework for reconsidering curriculum.
1: That's the purpose of the classroom, is that you're to be seen, to see others, to be in relation, to understand yourself as a person who belongs.
0: She understands the deep dynamics of groups that don't always register on teachers' radar.
1: Those kinds of moments that I believe are so deeply shaping for students in school, but often are not acknowledged as occurring that is part of the sacredness of classroom work.
0: We're going to explore three of the most useful ideas I learned from Emily for classroom work or anytime I work with teams or
1: other groups. That quality of relationship building and unbuilding I believe occurs in classrooms every day. And I wanted as a teacher to operate with that awareness so that we would be building each other up.
0: Emily Jane Style is a relational scholar. She appreciates the intellectual dimension of ideas but also knows that ideas matter relationally. Because there are real flesh and blood people in any given room. People with real and complex life stories involved in any given discourse. Emily values acknowledging what she calls the heart-to-heart dimension of how we talk about ideas face-to-face, or on the page, or across the ages. My favorite tribute to Emily's work comes from Christina Patterson-Brown, an educator and activist who studied with her in 1991, and recently thanked Emily for modeling, quote, what woke and intersectional work looked like before there was an Internet. End quote. Style began her teaching career at Eastern Christian, a high school in New Jersey not too different from the Dutch Calvinist schools she attended while she was growing up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I met Emily when she joined the faculty of Westfield High School in 2003, but that was after she would taught at the Evening High School and a specialized school for young pregnant women both in Passaic, New Jersey and at Madison High School in Madison, New Jersey. At the university level, Emily has served as a Teacher core Associate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she's taught courses at NYU and Cornell. She served on the Teacher Advisory Board for the first Dodge Poetry Festival in 1986, a kind of biennial, multicultural Woodstock of the poetry world that continues to this day. Together with Peggy McIntosh, she co-directed the National Seed Project for 25 years which stands for Seeking Educational Equity and Diversity, got an overview in my recent episode, Unpacking White Privilege with Peggy McIntosh. So be sure to check that out. And SEED will get its own show in the coming months. Simply put, SEED is the best teacher-led professional development program I know about. Though Emily is not a preacher's kid, she spent at least as much time in church growing up as I did, hearing sermons twice a Sunday, where it was explicit that you studied a text to unpack it. But the sermon wasn't complete unless you applied it to the here and now. To this day, that's how she understands text and unpacking text. How does it relate to the people, the life texts in the room? In today's conversation with Emily, we're focusing on three key concepts that she provided me language for. As I said, Emily and I met as colleagues in a high school English department, so we're gonna use mostly classroom examples. But I lean on these concepts when I work with any kind of organization or team, because these ideas matter to the sociology of group work. Regardless of the work you do, I think you'll find them valuable. The first concept is DKDK, DK. Shorthand Emily uses to refer to what we don't know, we don't know. Emily credits her longtime colleague, Dr. Linda Powell, and their work together in the school district of Philadelphia and the New Jersey seed branch with exposing her to the value of teachers, facilitators, and other leaders coming to terms with what we don't know we don't know. So, imagine a pie chart.
1: And there would be the slice of known, and then there would be the slice of you know that you don't know, and then there would be this huge slice of you don't know and you don't know that you don't know.
0: What would be an example you know for somebody of oh well that's in my DK DK like I didn't I didn't know I didn't know this.
1: A classroom example would be when a let's say a white student makes um, uh, a remark out of his or her whiteness that um, they don't know, that that's where it's coming from. So they make a, a shallow kind of statement that there may be a couple of other white students in the room that recognize that there's, um, there's an ignorance that's just been expressed. But the student who has said this, such as, um, well, they all look alike, uh, that kind of a obtuse generalization But a student is being fluent and kind of speaking from the heart, so to speak. That's where their consciousness is. But then there's a quality of electricity in the room uh, because some other students and myself as a teacher have registered on the level of ignorance that has just been expressed. So then how to deal with that? Because
0: it's important to say that the, the, the kid's not saying it to be Disparaging, necessarily, right? right? The, kid, the, the, the kid's just kind of offering it as an obstacle. Well, isn't it right. true? That's don't where, we, don't, that's don't where we agree that all people of this other race look the same? Exactly. I mean, isn't, that, isn't, yes. that, isn't that the way it is? Okay.
1: And, and so so then you've, um, so you've got a teachable moment, but only if there's a way to address the ignorance that's been expressed um, in a bridge-building fashion. Um, at least that's often my approach as a teacher, okay, so this ignorance has voiced itself. How can this become a teachable moment? And so the, uh, the narrative that I love to use and would always um, put in place within the first couple of days of any class I was okay. teaching at West... at at Westfield High School or Madison High School or when I was teaching at NYU or at Cornell is the ancient Hindu fable of the blind men and the elephant.
0: I'm betting you've heard this ancient Indian parable of the blind man and the elephant, so I won't retell it here. But as a quick refresher, the six blind men, who have never before encountered an elephant, each perceive different parts of the whole. One blind man feels the trunk and decides the strange animal must be like a snake another touching the ear, believes this creature must be like a fan, and so on.
1: And and the reason I would use that narrative is to establish the qualities of intelligence that those six characters had. Um,
0: Everybody, it, all these blind men are touching different pieces of the elephant, that's right. so, so they, they have, describe it in different ways. So
1: yeah. they have a, a piece of the data in hand, yeah. they compare it to something else in their experience which makes them very sure of what they're saying and they are accurate but only in a partial way and the fable itself does not include um, go rounds or conversing back and forth and so they're stuck in DKDK so by introducing that term and using that narrative often in my classroom work um, if I I could use DK DK, but sometimes I say I would say I believe we we're at an elephant moment.
0: Yeah, to give it I mean, it's part of the part of the you know an important aspect is to give it a name. You know, to give these things a name so that we have it and and and, and, and that. It seems to me that part of what that does is to diffuse it a little bit to say like this is a thing this is something Absolutely. that happens. It's more you know, it's as opposed to, to saying, look at you horrible child right. what have you just said that's so offensive you know get at, you know or a number of the different ways that people can right. react to that because ultimately we want to draw. People in and to Absolutely. try to bring them along. And so and instead of
1: calling people out, we want to call people in. So then, proactively as a teacher, yeah. to put that narrative on the in the foreground, to use the you know, to normalize D K D K that there are for any one of us, regardless of age or politics of location. There are a multitude of things that are in our DKDK. We don't know and we don't know that we don't know. Um, And so to have that as foundational understanding I think makes for really um, healthy teaching and learning um, atmosphere. And so how to have a shorthand term that takes it away from shame, blame, and guilt and makes it um, kind of an ordinary part of how we have to navigate in communicating and in understanding the world feels like a real gift.
0: Emily first wrote about DKDK in 1995 in an article called In Our Own Hands, Diversity Literacy. And that was for a publication called Transformations, which is the journal of inclusive scholarship and pedagogy. It's a very accessible piece with some good exercises that I'll make available from the show page for this episode. The second solid gold concept I gleaned from Emily's style is that 50% of the curriculum walks into the room with your students. If you're not teaching school, think of it this way. Regardless of what specific project your team or organization is trying to knock out of the park, the better you know your team members and their stories, and the better they know each other's, the richer the result will be. At one point when you and I were colleagues in the English department at Westfield High School in New Jersey, you shared with me the version of your English 1 syllabus that you gave out to parents on back Mm -hmm. to school night. You wrote, there's a sense in which half of the curriculum Mm -hmm. in this class comes from the students, individually and collectively, from day one. I talk about the textbooks of students' lives, mm-hmm. in that I see them being just as important as any other text with which I ask students to engage." Close quote. I want to add that I find this idea of 50% of the curriculum walking in the door with students so valuable that I share it with every group. Of educators I work with and probably most groups of Mm non-educators that I work with as well because I don't believe it's possible to do meaningful work with people before you have a sense of who they are, Mm -hmm. where they're coming from, and what they have to teach me Mm -hmm. as well as each other. How did you come to this essential equation?
1: In the wrestling with um how to understand my role as a classroom teacher in terms of being trained in coverage. And that. As in covering the curriculum. As in covering the curriculum. Yes. Okay. That that was my job. That there I had a sense of um, responsibility and wish to behave with integrity with regard to my role. But that. Template of framing my job uh, was inadequate. It gave me a big headache to try to um, figure out, given that framing, how to do my job. So, but I just wanted to observe this
0: uh, ubiquitous metaphor mm-hmm. of covering. You know, right. we just talked about that. That's one of the things that happens when, of course, what we'd hope would happen is that we uncover you know, that we, we hope mm-hmm. that we reveal, mm-hmm. but we, but this language lends itself to, oh, I'm going to get through this mm-hmm. and then, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do all this material. Mm-hmm. Um, when it just, it feels like if we think about it, the opposite of what we should be doing. I just wanted, <laughs> I just wanted yeah, to, absolutely. I just wanted to flag that because it's, it's used so so often right. um, it's it's so commonplace, but I think it's just uh, really counterproductive. I, I, yeah. I
1: really agree yeah. in that yeah. it's sort of like paving over, right. you know, as in covering, mm. and and also keeps the um, the agency on on the teacher. That's what you
0: do. You cover it. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And instead of um, understanding the relational interactive task of orchestrating with the half of the curriculum that's come in the room so that in fact it's an orchestration, um, a negotiation, a conversation that you're in charge of as a teacher. Not plowing through um, some version of material that um, you're supposed to cover. So I agree that language does us a disservice there in that um, understanding of covering the curriculum. So that's where the half the curriculum, when I, with that headache, with that wrestling with, so what is my job? And by then I'd been in the classroom um, a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, So I could name for myself that um, half the curriculum, walks in the room. And and that's why students' names were so important, why I spend yeah. the first couple of, of days learning their names, um, giving the first quiz is the name quiz, um, and that we have to know each other by name, because that's the nature of the work that we do. It is um, Personal as well as political as well as curriculum. How, how
0: did, was the name quiz based on pictures, or what, what did you give kids? Because you, uh, you're asking everybody, can you name everybody in here? So r- right, that, and and and
1: you, it was for what? my benefit as well because yeah. I had oh, yeah. 150 mm-hmm. um, names too, and so we would we would do go rounds. Um, they would say they they knew about half of the students in the room. Sure. Um, but the nature of my Westfield High School classroom, for example, but like freshmen, they were learning each other's names as well, and so um, we would start every start and finish each of those first couple of days by um, volunteers going around and saying um, the first name, and then I would get a chance as well. And it wasn't until everybody was ready that we would take the quiz because the goal is that everyone got an A, um, and. So the nature of that sure. uh, of making it a, a grade that counted, you know, that our names mattered um, emphasized that this is the starting point, sure. is knowing each other by name. And I'm just as responsible for that as, as you are. In fact, I had the greatest responsibility because of the n- number of students that I had to learn them by, you know, to know their names so that we would be in that quality of relationship with each other in the classroom. In wrestling with the paradigm with which I was educated about what my job was and how that was insufficient, that's where the naming that half the curriculum um, walks in the classroom with the students came. and then then I, then I could develop a sense of coherence of what my task was. and it had to do with the interaction between that half of the curriculum which I needed to become acquainted with and the half that I was already semi-acquainted with because I was the grown up in the room and I had a you know an education. So, I, but I still had lots of choices to make in terms of what texts we were going to engage with besides the textbooks of our lives. Sure.
0: And, and one of the ways, I just wanted to give a quick example so that people who didn't have access to your teaching in your classroom, you know what I, I loved for example, uh, you would, I think, at the beginning of the year, in conjunction, often maybe not every year, but often in conjunction with Old Man in the Sea, mm-hmm. you would ask students to have a conversation with an old man yes, you know, in their life, somebody sixty-five years or older. Right. And at the end of the year, you would have a conversation with an old woman. Yes. In the in their life, so you've yes. got something that's you know uh, cross generational, which is wonderful. You know to prompt that. You know uh, that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. But also, it's a great example of a paper that nobody else can write.
1: Absolutely. You
0: know, only you mm-hmm. can write about this person that like, mm-hmm. you get to select. And I'm sure often it was a grandparent, but mm-hmm. probably you know sometimes right. somebody else. But it's that kid's you know the, the choice, and then what they learn from that, and then you're asking them to write about that. It's just very different from give me three characteristics of Brutus and Julius Caesar, and that's going to be our essay. You yes.
1: Know? Absolutely, and also it. That it calls forth, this the scholar that I believe exists in every student, yeah. to you know, exercise with authority your capacity to listen and document um, what's occurred relationally in a conversation with um, you know someone you're related to or someone that you. Select from your church or synagogue uh, that's, that falls in this age bracket mm-hmm. from whom you can learn. Yeah.
0: Quick sidebar. Images of organization. It's fun to talk metaphors with Emily, a fellow former English teacher who's especially good at them. But the way we talk and think about our work the images we construct about our workplace. These really do affect how we approach our work in small and large ways. If I believe my classroom or business is a jungle, this mindset predisposes me to different behaviors than if I consider it a garden, say, or a family, or a jazz ensemble, or a factory. The factory metaphor for schools is regrettably beloved of policymakers who see teachers as technicians that cover curriculum in order to attain prescribed rates of student success on standardized tests. Emily's favorite metaphor for curriculum is a house with windows and mirrors. In fact, her 1988 essay, Curriculum as Window and Mirror, has been so influential to so many people that dozens of teachers and other fans gathered at the Wellesley Centers for Women on October 4, 2018, to celebrate the 30th anniversary of its publication. The show page for this episode has a link to the essay, but in a nutshell, windows are texts that enable readers to peer out and see the realities of other people. And mirrors are stories that reflect one's own reality. Style argues that balance is key. All students deserve a curriculum that pushes them to view the world outside their lived experience, as well as one that validates their own experience in the public world of school. I asked her how she came up with these powerful metaphors. Was it a flash of inspiration in the middle of the night, or what?
1: It has to do with um, being seen. And uh, so it, it wasn't a flash in the middle of the night. It was a kind of growing awareness of the classroom as a place of belonging, of being seen, of being known by name, that mattered to me. That, um, that's what classroom life was, was being seen. And so, the leap Um, to a metaphor, visual metaphor, um, um, occurred kind of in relation to the being seen and belonging. My belief that that's the purpose of the classroom, is that you're to be seen, to see others, to be in relation, To understand yourself as a person who belongs. Um, So, mirroring and looking out the window uh, or into the window of someone else's eyes and life experience that lovely My Great Uncle's Horse poem mm-hmm. that um, has mattered to me for years from Lou Gardner, a New Jersey poet, about that fourth grade where the uncle here. Uh, walks past, <laughs> um, and the students in that fourth grade are doing math, and the young person who's related to this old codger, who loves him, Uh, can hardly contain his excitement in saying that's that's my great uncle but before he can identify that relationship out the window of that classroom other students see a stereotype someone to laugh at and that laughter shuts him down and he does not identify that he's related to this old man and in the so in the narrative of that poem that i have loved for years I'm, i comes the understanding of how the division during math class that occurred in that classroom where the young person who loved the old man out the window all of a sudden became aware how others saw that loved one with uh, in a despairing way and how that educated his heart and mind so he said nothing that Quality of relationship building and unbuilding, I believe, occurs in classrooms every day. And I wanted, as a teacher, to operate with that awareness so that we would be building each other up in the face of our DKDKs in the intimacy of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the way that high school life happens.
0: Would you, would you be willing to read the poem? I would love yeah, to yeah. read it. Yeah.
1: This is um, New Jersey poet Lou Gardner's My Great Uncle's Horse. My mother's uncle had a horse. The best time of a deadly relative Sunday was to walk with him to the stable and watch him feed the quiet animal, to give it sugar from my own hand and jump back away from the big warm tongue, to smell the hay and manure, to see the white horse in the next stall with tail and mane like yellow silk. If my mother and I ran into him as he and the horse were making their rounds, Buying up the wonderful junk they heaped and hauled in the wagon, he'd lift me up to the seat and let me hold the reins and yell, Giddy up! In the spring of fourth grade, one afternoon of silent division, we heard a clanking and looked outside. My great uncle, I could tell them all how I had held those reins, but Everyone laughed at the hunched old man, the obsolete wagon and horse, the silly clattering junk. I did not tell them. It's those kinds of moments that I believe are so deeply shaping for students in school, but often are not uh, acknowledged as occurring. That is part of the sacredness of classroom work because there's an intimacy afoot. So as I've said before, to go back to kind of laying a foundation with the ancient fable of the blind men and the elephant, with DK, DK, with an explicit acknowledgement that half the curriculum walks in the room with you all, is to acknowledge the tapestry of the terrain, um, which for me makes the classroom more rigorous. Um, The rigor is relational, um, psychological, sociological, uh, as well as academic and intellectual. So it's that balance between um, the scholarship on the shelves that I've been charged to uh, transmit to the next generation. And the scholarship in themselves, and in fact, the scholarship in myself. That's a part of the um, mix. That's a really precious part of what it means to be a teacher.
0: And it's a part, you know, as you said, that's always there, mm-hmm. whether we acknowledge it yes. or not. Yes. But the extent to which we do, and the extent to which um, we gloss over it. Cover it. Yes. Um, in bury you know, it. Yeah, bury it in the way repress it, it repress it, or suppress it mm-hmm. in, the, in the you know in the spirit of don't smile until after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that can be it, it's costly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but it also deprives um, everybody of much of the deep learning that can happen. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, it it, it um, diminishes the dimensionality of our humanity all the way around. And so the learning isn't as deep and wide um, as it certainly can be.
0: That's it for today's show. My great thanks to Emily Style for another illuminating conversation, this time on the record. Special thanks to guitarist Jason Grant, a member of my seed cohort at Westfield High School, led by Emily who worked up a couple Simon and Garfunkel favorites for his friend and former colleague. Thanks, as always, to Schaefer James for intro and outro music, and thanks to you for listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, and mixed by me, Peter Horn, and it's produced in sunny Buffalo, New York. Please do think of one other person you think would dig it and share it up. It means most coming from you back at you just as soon as I can with another fresh take on what and how and why we learn. For most episodes, this is where you hear an outtake I found pretty funny. Today, what feels right is a quotation from my first interview with Emily in 2011 when I was just starting to pursue my doctorate and seeking out inspiring leaders in education to talk to. I don't have the audio anymore, so I'm just going to read it. Once again, she's referring to a classroom context, but anybody who ever runs a meeting should listen up. Emily said, I'm cognizant when I teach that we are dealing on more than one plane. And one of the planes is what makes life worthwhile, the philosophical plane. Why are we here? And why does this enterprise matter?